spend far too much time fooling ourselves when it comes to our personal holiness. We are righteous positionally. We are holy positionally. And we're quite happy about that. And we can't lose that. But how consistently do we really live with the position that we have in Jesus Christ? How consistently do we live experientially with our positional righteousness? Now, I'm not speaking about the area of questionable things, like the questionable things in Corinth. We're not talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about clear, black and white things, where there's clear, specific, biblical revelation. And we're not living consistently with that clear, specific, biblical revelation. It's painful to admit that we're not following God as we should follow him. It's embarrassing to admit that. It's embarrassing to admit it to another human being, but it's also painful and embarrassing sometimes to admit it to God. The ironic thing is that God already knows what our faults are. He already knows what our sins are. It's not like we're telling omniscient God when we confess our sins what it is we've done, and it's a surprise to him. He already knows what it is we've done. But we're admitting to him that what we've done is wrong. He already knows our, our deepest and our darkest secrets, the things that we don't want anybody else to ever know, but he already knows them. And he still sustains you. He still takes care of you. He still loves you. If we are to come to a place where we are to live consistently in fellowship with God, we've got to develop an honest relationship with him. We have to have an honest relationship with omniscient almighty. That's what he wants from us. He's honest. When we've done something that is considered a sin, he wants us to admit that what we did was actually wrong. That's all. He wants us to admit that what we did violated his holiness. There are different views on confession throughout the entirety of the church with the big C, and I use the word a little bit loosely in this sense. The Roman Catholic Church believes in confession, but they believe you have to make a confession to a priest. Most Protestants, all Protestants, believe that we ourselves are priests and we go straight to God with our confession. The point is, regardless of where you sit on that spectrum, everybody understands that a confession needs to be made. At least the overwhelming majority of people understand that. When the believer sins, we've not fallen from grace in the sense that they've lost their salvation, but we do lose something. We lose that close, intimate, personal relationship with God. It's called the koinonia relationship in Scripture. Koinonia is the word that's translated fellowship. A fellowship relationship is more than just a positional relationship. You have to have a positional relationship first, and then you can have a fellowship relationship. March 18th, I know this morning I said my, my grandson was six years old and he was crawling around in the nursery. <laughs> The other day I said Elizabeth Taylor was born in 1826. Actually, she was. She just looks really, really good for her. She does. She, she is. But as best as I can remember right now, Cindy and I were married on March 18, 1984, right about noon. We were positionally united at that time. The pastor gave us our vows. Signed the form, sent it in, and and we were positionally united. We were we were a couple before the state of Texas. We were married. Then that evening we got on a plane and went out to California. Landed in Los Angeles. It was completely exhausting. It was like two in the morning my time before we got out there. Got up the next morning, 
Good food, Beverly Hills and Los Angeles and ate a hamburger on the Rodale Drive. It was really, really fun. Drove up to San Francisco. And somewhere between Houston and San Francisco, I think it was up toward Monterey, I did something. It's hard for you to believe, but I did something that, that offended Sweet Beer Cindy. I know it's hard. It's those, both those things are hard for you to believe, but I could do something and then she would possibly be offended by it. But it happened. Believe it. I don't remember what it was, but it was significant in her mind. And she was upset with me. And we lost some of that close, intimate fellowship that we had just the Sunday before. I mean, she that was the best thing that God ever created. Had you asked me, but by Monday or Tuesday, whenever we got up to San Francisco, I was fine. So I did what I needed to do, as all men need to do, and I was trying to figure out what she was upset about, and I said, oh, that's fine. That's and then the, the, the fellowship just resumed. Now, the whole time, we were positionally united. The whole time, we were still married. But while we had that positional relationship, there was a momentary time when we didn't have the intimacy, the close, intimate, personal fellowship, what the Greek calls the koinonia relationship that we were designed to have. You see, in marriage, we were designed to have fellowship with one another. So when we were not walking in fellowship with one another, that was outside of what God had planned for us. The norm would be to walk in fellowship with one another. It's not a perfect example because human beings can and some have. You know, sometimes it happens that human beings actually break that positional relationship and become divorced and then remarry or something. So the analogy doesn't follow through completely, but it's a fairly decent analogy. God won't divorce you. You can't get divorced from God. Once you're in that positional relationship with him, that's a permanent thing. Well, you can do something to offend his holiness. Now, he will never do anything to offend your holiness because you don't have any. Neither do I. I mean, frankly, we don't. The only holiness we have is his. It's a one-way deal. We do things to offend him. And when we do, we break off that fellowship. It's not like God has gone anywhere. He's staying right there. We're the ones that have left. We're the ones that need to come back. God never needs to come back to us. We need to come back to him. And the one condition to that is confession. So when the Bible talks about the believer losing the fellowship relationship, the Bible's not speaking about losing our salvation, never. But we can lose something. God's still holy, and anything of unholiness that's found in the believer will cause the relationship with our Heavenly Father to suffer. Now, this is not new information, I know, but I hope you'll listen to it afresh from the Old Testament tonight from Nehemiah. The believer suffered a loss of fellowship, but not a loss of salvation. He hasn't, or she hasn't, become depraved. We know from the scriptures that the divinely prescribed remedy from the eternal penalty of sin, in other words, what we need to do to be saved, is faith alone in Christ alone. If that's the divinely prescribed remedy for the solution to the eternal penalty of sin, then what's the divinely prescribed remedy for the solution to the loss of fellowship relationship? That would be confession. Bruce Craig Taylor used to say it this way, there's but one condition that, that an individual has to meet in order to become eternally saved, and that's faith. There's but one condition a person has to meet in order, as a believer in order to return to fellowship with God, and that's confession. Faith for salvation, confession for the return to fellowship. You don't get those mixed up. And as Schaefer said a long time ago, 1918, he was if you get them mixed up, you're going to be in big trouble. You don't have people confess their sins in order to come to Christ the first time. You don't have them exercise faith 
in order to be restored to fellowship. That's missing those two things in our life. And we ought not to do that. Now, one of the best-known verses in all the New Testament, you've got it memorized. I doubt there's anybody in here that doesn't know this verse. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the best-known verses in the New Testament. Some people do hold, you need to know, some people do hold that 1 John 1, 9 is a salvation verse. Talk about salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. They think it's a salvation verse that presents a separate and necessary condition to faith alone for the receiving of eternal life or the receiving of the forgiveness of the, from the penalty of sin. Those who hold that view typically include in their gospel presentation something about confessing one's sins. We need to recognize we're a sinner. We need to confess our sins. We need to turn from them, and then we need to exercise faith in Christ. And you'll see gospel tracts that are like that. One, one group that puts out a fantastic gospel tract that you'll never see anything like that in his tracts is Larry Boyer's group, Evangel. Evangel has a great offering of salvation tracts. Not every salvation tract is created equal. Some people would say, well, confessing one's sins is a precondition. I think that's missing the point. First John is written to believers, not written to unbelievers. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, was written to unbelievers. We spent quite a bit of time studying the Gospel of John, and you heard this phrase before. The Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has, as its express purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. Now, there are other books, there are other passages that tell you how to be saved. Jesus didn't say one here. But the Gospel of John is the only book that has, as its express purpose, the evangelization of the unbeliever. And in John's gospel, he gives but one condition for the receiving of eternal life. Just one. That's faith. And one object. And that's Christ. So we have the only book in the Bible that has as its express purpose in the text. That means it's written down in there. The evangelization of the unbeliever and one condition is given. Faith alone in Christ alone. If John goes into 1 John, and if he's writing to people who are unbelievers, and he introduces a new condition that he didn't mention in his gospel, wouldn't we think that there's a problem there? Because if the Holy Spirit's the author of both John, the Gospel of John and 1 John, and, and we find out later that John left a separate and necessary condition out of his gospel for receiving eternal life, confession of sins, then that'd be a major problem. But there isn't a problem because they're written to different audiences. The epistle of 1 John was not written to demonstrate to the unbeliever how they might receive eternal life, but rather the, the epistle of 1 John was written to the believer to demonstrate how we ought to live after salvation in view of the fact that our sins have been forgiven from the eternal penalty. We already have eternal life. And that's critical because if 1 John is written to believers and unbelievers to tell us how to get to heaven, then John left a major, major, major qualification out of the Gospel of John for receiving of eternal life. Major. And that's not a mistake that John would have made. 1 John 1, 9 is not describing what it takes to receive forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin. It's a verse written to Christians that gives the divinely inspired remedy for the consequence of post-salvation sin. The consequence of post-salvation sin was not losing your own salvation, but it is losing that intimacy with God. So 1 John 1, 9 tells us how we might be restored to fellowship with God after we've done something to offend God's holiness. 
In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, John makes it very, very clear that we all sin. Anybody who says that they don't sin is not telling the truth. Very, very clear. Then in verse 10, it asserts, it really says, it comes right out and says, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. In between, we have this verse, 1 John 1, 1. This is a, what Greek grammarians would call a conditional clause. If we do something, then this is going to happen. It can be understood this way. Let's assume that there is a legal contract between a doctor and a hospital. A legal promise, a legal contract between a doctor and a hospital that goes something like this. If you do A, then B will happen. If the doctor does the surgery, then we will pay him. And that's a legal contract. That's a legally binding promise. If you do A, then we're, we'll do B. Now, maybe you're going to do A. Maybe you're not going to do A. Now, as a doctor, you'd be expected to do A. As a doctor, you'd be expected to do the surgery. That's part of your, your oath that you take. So it would be the expected norm. But there's a possibility you might not do it. But if you do it, then for sure this other thing is going to happen. For sure we're going to pay you, at least in this example. Some of the doctors and healthcare professionals said, well, they, they realize that's not always happened. <laughs> but in a perfect world, if everybody keeps their promise, you do the surgery, you get paid, if there's a contract. This is an example of what Greek grammarians, modern Greek grammarians, call a future more vivid clause. Future more vivid. You might have heard it called a third-class conditional in the past. But the more modern term is a future more vivid conditional clause. If this happens, then this is promised to happen. A future more vivid conditional clause does imply that it's the norm or the expected thing for A to happen. Back to my example, it's the expected thing for a surgeon to do the surgery. That's what they do. That's what surgeons do. If there's an emergency, they're not going to walk out and say, well, I'm going to lunch. I'll get to that person afterwards. They miss lunch, and they take care of the patient. Same way with a future more vivid conditional in 1 John 1 9. It's the expected norm for us to confess our sins. That's what God expects. So it's not a 50 50. Maybe they'll do it and maybe they won't. There's another kind of Greek conditional for that. Future most vivid. We're, we're talking about a future more vivid. And this, this is not just a subjective thing, the actual grammar is different, the wording is different. The the terms that are used in the Greek conditional are different. So we know which one is which. What I'm trying to say is it's God expects a certain behavior from us. It's not a 50-50, he's taking or leaving. He expects us, as his children, to utilize this promise. It's the expected behavior, just like it would be expected of a doctor to do the surgery if the surgery, if the person had a life, a life-threatening condition. We're not talking about logical certainty with regard to that phrase, by the way. I'm going to call it contractual certainty. Assuming there's integrity on the part of the person that made the contract, they're going to do what they said to do. And in this case, there is integrity on the person making the contract. The person made the contract with us, this almighty, righteous, holy, just, fair God. He's going to fulfill that which he promised. One question we need to continually keep before us is what is meant by a confession? A lot, a lot of written about this. There's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about this idea. The Greek term that's used for confession in 1 John 1, 9, and we will get to Nehemiah 9 in just a moment, which is all text, is homo legato. Have you heard that term before? I don't know if you have. 
Kolomogel is a Greek term that means to make an honest, open admission that what I've done is wrong. That's what Kolomogel means. That's why it's translated confess, sometimes admit, acknowledge, all those different words. I don't like the, the term name so much. You'd be hard-pressed to validate that in ancient literature. Sometimes, someone once said one time, it means the site is in a courtroom case. And you use Plato as the validation for that. But there's two problems with that. Plato goes way, way back before New Testament Greek. It would be almost 400 years there. And words can change meaning over a 400-year period. Secondly, who can find that reference after that abstract? It doesn't mean just to cite something. It means to admit that I'm guilty, that what I did was wrong. That's what that come by. That's the way it's used in ancient Aquinas here. Both. To admit that I did what was wrong. To admit that what I did violated God's holy standard. We're going to see that in a minute. Hang in there. In Nehemiah chapter 5. They're going to have to admit that the way that they've been living and the way their nation has been living has been wrong before they can go forward. They can't just ignore it. It's something personal. It's not something mechanical. And since it's personal and not mechanical, yes, if you've done something wrong and you admit that to God, that I come to that and say, God, this is the problem. This is what I did. I admit this is wrong. You already know what I did. I'm admitting that it's wrong what I did and that it violated your holiness. There may be some sense of guilt there. There may be a feeling of guilt. It's normal. If you're guilty, how should you feel? Guilty. <laughs> if you're guilty and you don't have any feeling of guilt whatsoever, they call that a sociopath. There's a name for that. <laughs> now, if you're not guilty, if you've been forgiven and restored to fellowship, and yet you still bathe in that guilt, then that's wrong too. See, that's not healthy either. But in a healthy human being, both spiritually and physically and emotionally, if you're guilty, you may have a little guilt feeling. Now, the feeling of guilt doesn't get you any more forgiven. The Bible never says anything about confessing and feeling guilty about it. That's just a normal reaction. But if I've offended God and I know what it took for God to pay for that sin, I studied it the last four years, if I know what it took, then yes, I'm going to have a little remorse. It's normal. It's healthy. I'm not preaching guilt-free sin. Never accuse me of that. That that is not what we preach. If you're guilty, you're guilty, and God's going to discipline. But I will tell you this: that God's made a promise. Give me a life. I mean, I can tell you, God's made a promise to you. If you sin and you go to Him and admit to Him you did it and what you did was wrong, not just that you did it. He already knows that. You're not telling me things He doesn't already know. But say, Father, what I did is wrong. That's wrong. When I did this, I was sinning. You may not have to say those words. He reads your thoughts. He knows what's involved in your confession. But that better be what's behind the terminology. The feeling of guilt does not enhance forgiveness. But it may very well be there and it might be personal. Now, it better be gone after you confess that sin. Because then you're forgiven. So it would not be normal and healthy and natural and all those things. So you would still feel guilty after God said, okay, I'm going to remove that guilt from you. You're forgiven. I think that's where a lot of believers go wrong. They have that guilt feeling, and then they keep it for months and months after God's forgiven them. It's almost like they can't forgive themselves. Like, listen, if God will forgive you, then you better forgive yourself too. 
Otherwise, you're going to get right back out of fellowship by wallowing in some sort of self-pity. We don't want to do that. When we confess, when we admit, when we acknowledge that what we did was sinful, God forgives every sin every time. Yes, every sin every time. I've taught this in venues all around the world. In one session, I always come to us asking the question, I ask the question, do you mean to tell me? Is it through an interpreter <laughs> or someone speaking English? We always ask some of these great questions. And they start, do you mean to tell me? You're teaching everybody here that I could, as a Christian, I could go out and kill somebody and confess it and I'm going to be forgiven? Yes, that's what I mean to tell you. You are. Now, you may still get the death penalty. And you probably will. And you deserve the death penalty. But God's going to forgive you from the temporal consequence of that sin because he's lost the world. And I say that all the time. It's based upon the word of God. It's not encouraging anybody to kill anybody. Somebody says, well, that's just encouraging people to sin. In fact, there's evidence that that's one of the charges that's done against God's law. You're just encouraging people to sin. No. Not at all. Now, Calvin took it a little different angle. He took a different route. He said, well, then, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if a person really is a believer, they wouldn't have committed that sin in the first place. That's not what I'm going to say, because there are people that are believers that murder people. That happened often, I don't think, but it happened. We need to come face to face with that. It doesn't mean they weren't saved in the first place. They went off the track and strayed from it. Anything that an unbeliever can commit, we can commit. And you've got to be careful. If you think you can't, you just wait. Satan's going to pounce right on you. As soon as you have this thought go through your mind, or heaven forbid, it come out of your mouth, because I don't think Satan can read your mind. If you start having it come out of your mouth, or I'll never do that. Well, really. <laughs> Only one to play with today, Wormwood. God forgives every sin every time. He's faithful and he's just. Now, there may be a price to pay. There may be discipline because God loves you and he doesn't want you to do it again. He's gonna, he may make your life miserable. But you're going to be forgiven. I'd rather be forgiven and pay the consequence than not forgiven. One quick thing. If we have committed, let's, let's say, three sins. If we've lied to a friend, stolen a bicycle, and we're in the middle of an extramarital affair, sins A, B, and C. When I go to God and confess, I need to confess all three. I don't just confess the ones I'm ready to, to deal with. At least if I want to really be returned to fellowship with God. It's an absurdity. But it's an absurdity that's being taught, so I have to at least present it. There are those that would teach. You just need to de deal with the ones you can deal with right now. God's going to forgive you from all of them. No, my friends, that is, you cannot validate that from the Scripture. You need to confess them all. You need to deal with them all. Or you're not going to walk in fellowship with God. Some people say, well, I'm going to confess the bike thing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to confess the lying to a friend, but, but I'm not ready to confess this extramarital affair. Because, you know, if my wife doesn't treat me right. And if everybody knew how she did that, then they would realize I really, I'm validated in doing this. And, you know, these kind of things, you know, make all kind of excuses. Make all the excuses you want, but you're not going to be walking back in fellowship with God. It doesn't work that way. You confess it all. You come clean. Confession restores the believer to fellowship. Repentance keeps the believer. Sometimes we wonder what's the difference between those two terms. Confession is admitting that what I, I'm doing is wrong. Repentance is turning away from it. Confession gets you back into fellowship. Repentance keeps you there. That's the difference. They're very related terms. In fact, without repentance, confession is not going to do you much good. It really is. You, 
you may stay in fellowship right now and I'll stop preaching for a minute. But if you're, you're not going to be willing to deal with whatever it is that you need to deal with, your restoration of fellowship is going to be very important. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we learn that principal leadership is concerned with the long-term spiritual status of the ones that they lead. Long-term spiritual growth or spiritual maturity is directly tied into the exposition and the inspection of the Word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we observe the people of Israel, after being exposed to the Word of God, that's key, after being exposed, after seeing what God's revelation really is and what He considers right and what He considers wrong, acceptable and unacceptable, after that, they make a great confession of their sin. They had to be exposed to what God expects of them before they're going to really see what they need to see. When faced with the mirror of the Word of God, we have to have a choice. Do I change or do I not change? Here's the Word of God, and it's going to tell me whether what I'm doing is right or whether what I'm doing is wrong. And then I have to change. It's the same way that when I get up in the morning, when you get up in the morning, I hope that you do, there's usually a mirror somewhere in your home. And you go to that mirror, and you, you may be aghast at what you see at first, but you know you can do something with it. Yeah. You know, you go into that mirror, and you look, and you say, oh, my goodness. My hair needs to be combed, you know, and there's some other things that need to be taken care of. But if I looked in that mirror and saw those things, yet did nothing about it, people would think that, that we were off our rocker, wouldn't they? What's the point of looking into the mirror and seeing whatever flaws are there that can be corrected and not correcting them? In polite society, we appreciate it when people correct their flaws. That's just what we like to see. It would be silly to have these mirrors, especially you know, the ones with the lights around them and you know, the magnifying one. I don't know. I guess that you ladies can tell me why they made one of those. I think those are terrible. You, know, you turn it around, you see. back around it's great I don't know what the purpose of that was <laughs> except to show your flaws more clearly yeah okay now if you see the flaw more clearly you should do something about it right that's what's happened to Israel in chapter 9 they have had that mirror turned on in fact it was not just the mirror because remember they did it all day long they, they had that magnifying mirror turned and they saw exactly what their flaws were. And they realized that they were going to get to where they needed to be spiritually as a nation and individually. It's a little bit different from us because they're uh, a nation that has been set apart by God and his chosen people. But they're going to see what has to be fixed. In order to see what has to be fixed, they have to understand God. Because if, if God's the standard, then we need to know something about him. And that's what happens here. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, on the 24th day, this is two days later. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with, fa assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and with dirt upon them. This is the posture of one who's grieving. This is the posture of one who feels a little bit guilty about what they've done. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities and their follies. We're told one time there's only one place in the Bible that ever says you need to confess your sins, and that's 1 John 1. 9. Just read the Bible, please. Confession is all over the Bible. This whole chapter is. 
Nehemiah chapter 9 is an example of an honest national confession. These are God's chosen people, and they've been acting like anything but God's chosen people. So the confession that they make in verse 2 is both personal and national. It's a little different than the confession that we make. The United States doesn't enjoy the same position that ancient Israel did and people of Israel did over there. We don't enjoy that place. We're not God's chosen people. Now, we are a nation that I think has been greatly blessed by God. We're a nation that has been blessed by God because we've sent out missionaries and we've done many, many things that, that have instituted that blessing. But we're, we're not God's chosen people. We haven't replaced Israel as God's chosen people. So the whole idea about a national confession is going to be a little bit foreign to us. But for them, this is a very significant thing. We're not God's chosen people. Don't, don't, don't make that mistake of that. Don't, think that we, don't ever think we've replaced Israel. There is a future for Israel. We haven't replaced it. The church hasn't replaced it. No nation has replaced it. The point is that national confession, like happens here in verse 2, would have more significance for an ancient Jew than it would for us. We can get together as a church and confess our nation's sin and, and the direction that our nation is going, and perhaps that wouldn't be a bad idea for many, many local churches to get together and say, we've, we've come down the wrong path. We need to go back in the right direction. But it's going to have a different significance for the Jews. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law, the Lord their God, for a, for a fourth of a day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. What this really tells us is they had a three-hour Bible study. After the three-hour Bible study, then again they had the mirror of the word turned upon them, and they worshipped and they confessed. Now, the worship probably means to turn their attention to God. The confession is that. On the platform, there were Levites. In verse 5, again, the Levites. What happens is, in Israel, there were priests. The priests are going to speak for all the people now. When they make this confession, that's going to run from verse 6 all the way through the end of the chapter. The Levites are actually going to make it, but the people are amening it as they go. You know how sometimes when we have our prayer meetings, People will say amen at different times, and quietly, oftentimes, but they will amen at different times. By the way, I have no problem with that. As long as it doesn't distract from the whole idea of the prayer meeting, I, I find it actually quite nice to see people paying attention. Now, if you're just doing it to be heard, that's another subject. But a quiet amen is not a bad thing. These people are amening this the whole way. So verses 6 through 15 begin the confession, and the confession begins with how wonderful God is. Before I can realize how much I have sinned, I need to realize how perfect and how holy God is. That's what's happening in verses 6 through 15. Thou alone art God. Thou alone art Yahweh, the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the, he the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. These verses recognize who God is. That's the first thing that needs to take place. In fact, some who write a lot about prayer think that that's a good way to start all prayers. One who taught his disciples how to pray did something like that, didn't he? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy name, or may your name be set apart. You are so fantastic. You are incredible. It's appropriate to begin prayer that way by recognizing the one to whom we're speaking. It should be done with reverence and awe, and that's what they're doing here. You alone are Yahweh. We, God, were not. That's the first thing that they recognize, and it runs all the way from chapter 9, verse 6, all the way through verse 16, how incredible God is. 
But I want you to see a contrast, because we don't have the time tonight to cover each one of these verses. But that's the gist of what's happening. God is great. You are wonderful. You're perfect. You're righteous. You're holy. You've done all these things. You're creator. That's who you are. Verse 6, thou alone art the Lord. Look over at verse 16 now. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. There's a comparison and contrast. The comparison and contrast is between you, O Lord, but they. And actually, it's not just they. It's we, because they were doing the same thing. You, O Lord, are this way. You're up here, but they, we, have been acting this way. There's a disconnect between what was expected of them, which is, in essence, godly behavior, behavior that God approved, and the way they were behaving. And when there's that kind of disconnect, there are also going to be mental problems. Mental and emotional problems. I see people with mental and emotional problems sometimes, and you can figure out what part of it is. Not all of it. Not all of it. There are medical, there are medical emotional problems. But sometimes there are volitional emotional problems. The reason that you're having this problem is because there's such a disconnect between what you believe to be the truth and how we're living. And no wonder it would cause mental distress to be around. So you see, thou alone are God, but they. There's a great contrast between the way they're acting. They, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to thy commandments. It means they would not obey them. And they refused to listen and did not remember the wondrous deeds which thou hast performed. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. So now they, now verses 16 and following, all the way through verse 31, recount the story of ancient Israel and how they have turned their back on God every time they had an opportunity. God did this. He rescued them. They do this. They turn their back on God. Now, that would be pretty easy to see as a sin, wouldn't it? But that generation didn't. So that's naturally offensive to them too. How Israel had sinned. I hope you see what's happening here. First, in the confession, there's a recognition of how perfect God is. Second, there's a recognition of how imperfect they had been. That's the same thing when we confess our sins on a personal level. For me to confess a sin, I've got to recognize this is God's holy standard and I haven't met it. And I'm going, to him, I'm going to him and telling him something he already knows, that I've committed this sin and I'm admitting to him that what I did was wrong. I'm admitting that I did something wrong. Now, I hope you can see an internal dynamic that's different there. If I just go to him and say, yeah, I did it, that's different from saying I did it and I'm wrong. If you don't think so, try that on your husband or your wife next time you've done something wrong. Stayed out a little too late. You, you know, you tried to play two rounds of golf instead of one. You come home, you miss dinner. She said, "Yeah, I did it. Yeah, I did. I played two rounds of golf." She's probably not going to accept that as a confession. <laughs> now, if you said, "Hey, listen, I did, and uh, I'm sorry about that. I, I am I'm a sucker. I'm, I should have at least apologized." Cell phones now you can't. There's not that many. There was one time earlier on in, in my marriage where we were playing paintball. You know the paintball game that used to be popular? Well, we actually caught her playing paintball. I was supposed to be home by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 7 o'clock in the evening, and I told her. The mistake that I made was saying, let's finish the meal. Because if there were, if there were no phones, I could call her. She couldn't call me. <laughs> There's no phones between Tanya and Valeria here. No. And she was home. I'm sorry. I should have called. You see, that's the difference. If I'd have just said, yeah, I was up playing paintball. That's more defiant than it is an admission. 
but I'll tell you why you can have it. I hope you see this. Let me try to give you a biblical truth. There's nothing defiant in 1 John 1, 9. Nothing defiant at all. It's humble. It's humbling to admit that what we do is a sin before a holy God. And that's what these people are having to do too. But they're not just doing it for themselves. They're having to go back almost a thousand years in history. Not just us, but our whole our, our people as a, in general have been disobedient for years. Then we get to verse 32. So you have God in the beginning. Thou alone art the Lord. Then in verse 16, but they, our fathers. And then in verse 32, now therefore our God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who doth keep covenant and kindness. Now that, that sounds kind of like a way to approach the God, the universe. Not, yeah, I sin. What are you going to do about it? That's, I'm serious. That's no way to approach the God of the universe. Not if you're insane. Not if you recognize who you're speaking to. This is, this is how they approach him. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who doth keep covenant and love and kindness, mercy, chesed, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before thee. I love the way that they say this. This is so poetic. Don't let all the hardships that we've suffered seem insignificant. It's a big deal. And this is a group of people that just had to deal with all the hardships of rebuilding this wall. Being rebuked by Nehemiah because they were charging their brethren an usurious interest rate. They were suffering for that. And all they're saying is, Lord, we get it. We realize that we've been wrong. And then suffering is painful. That's okay. It's okay to pray, Lord, I get it. This is a confession, and it's also a petition. Now there's a petition. Verse 34, however, thou, thou art a just, thou art just, and all that have come upon us. They recognize that they're being disciplined as a nation fairly. For thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Now that's a confession. That's a confession. Verse 35, but they, in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness, which thou didst give them, with the broad and rich land, which thou didst serve them, did not serve thee. Again, they're recognizing they did this. You did it too. You are this way, we're this way. There's an incredible comparison and contrast. Down to verse 37. And its abundant produce is for the kings whom thou hast sent over us because of our sins. Now they're, they're having to work for the Persians now. God rescued him from the Egyptians almost a thousand years ago. Now they're having to work for the Persians. You'd think they'd get it. It's about time to admit that what we did was wrong and then turn back to him. Because of our sins, they also rule over our bodies and rule over the cattle and their priests, so we are in great distress. You see, that's what he meant by, that's, that's what these priests who are all speaking this in unison are perhaps taking turns. It's hard to say. And they said, don't let all the hardships seem insignificant to you. They're asking for relief. They've made their confession, and they're asking for relief from the hardship. Legitimate prayer request. Please respond. Say, Father, I, I get it. I really do get it. Help me not to do that again. That's what David said. That's the psalm that we read in his great confession psalm. He said, that's basically, I paraphrase, I get it. There was no happiness in me at all when I was walking out of fellowship with you. 
no happiness at all. My bones ache. I'm crying out. There's no contentment in walking out of fellowship with God. We pretend to fool ourselves into thinking we're content when we're not walking in fellowship. It didn't happen for the ancient Israelites. It's not going to happen for us either. The ancient Israelites went a long time without exposing their real state. And you have. been exposed to God's Word and what He expects of you, and so have I. And it's up to us after that exposure to resolve, with God's help, to walk consistently in fellowship with Him. And that means admitting that what we did was wrong and turning away from it. Asking Him to help us.